Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Edith Schneer, professor of saxophone and jazz studies at the University of Oregon. We hope you enjoy. Wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and in this lovely Zoom room with me today, my wonderful co-pilot is the brilliant and delightful Dr. Blair Kerner. How are you today, my dear? I am doing well, thanks for asking. We're incredibly excited about our guest today because this is actually one of my colleagues at the University of Oregon, the wonderful and brilliant Edith Schneer, who is not only our saxophone professor at the University of Oregon, but the professor of jazz studies. She has performed throughout the world, especially in the US and in Israel, and is known both for her classical and jazz performances. She has performed with her jazz quartet all over the West Coast and all sorts of other chamber music. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the wonderful Edith. How are you today? Hello to the listeners and hello Blair and hello Rosie. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking about all this stuff. First off, I would like to talk about uh, how you balance your performing and teaching schedules and also your differences between your jazz and classical work. So I really started out as a jazz player. Well, no, I really started out as a recorder player. Yeah. Yes. So I, I started recorder with everybody else in first grade, but I really, really loved it. So I took recorder lessons and for eight years and I was really into Baroque music and I went to a lot of, I went to a lot of concerts in Israel by a recorder player, Bracha Kol. That is not the answer I expected. No. And at 14, when, when I started high school, I went to the, my recorder teacher and asked her, well, what do you think I should do next? And she said, well, I think you should play flute. And I asked her why? And she said, because you're a girl. Oh no! Oh. So I picked the saxophone. Nice. <laughs> so there you go. Mm. So that's how I started saxophone. And all throughout high school, I was really, really into jazz and a lot of Bartok, a lot of um, more experimental 20th century music. But what I was playing and practicing was jazz. So speaking of both classical and jazz, as an educator, what are your thoughts on learning both jazz and classical saxophone rather than specializing? It's interesting. Because as we gain more ground into this new brave world where genre, genre doesn't really matter quite as much and genre boundaries are being more and more blurred, it seems like it would be really handy to be semi-proficient at both, right? But 
our um, higher education system in the U.S. is actually going the opposite direction. It's going to the direction of hyper-specialization. So I don't have a good answer for this because would I think it would be um, to the benefit of somebody who's graduating with, a, let's say, a master's degree to have some sort of a basic proficiency at both? Absolutely. It would be highly marketable. But the way our system is structured right now, that would be very difficult to do. Back in the day when I did my doctorate at the University of North Texas, we used to have a weekly um, forum in which all the saxophonists would play for each other. Uh, it, so the jazzers would get to hear the classical oh, nice. folk and the f- classical folk would get to hear the jazz people. And so in, at least there would be that hmm. much. But after I left, even that tiny form was separated. And now there's a separate performance class for jazz saxophone and separate performance class for classical saxophone. And I just think that's too bad. And so I really don't have a solution for this. Uh, I definitely hmm. enjoy very much teaching both and I enjoy playing both. And I can even give you a complete different talk about how to switch and what is it, what involves switching and what is it like. Um, but the way our university is structured where um, classes have a very specific reason for them and they have to be NASM approved and everything has to be in a particular load. And, you know, and music education majors have so much that they need to get done. And jazz studies majors have so much to do that there seems to be not much room for those extra things that might come very handy later. So you've released numerous albums, including your nine short stories yes. with your quartet mm-hmm. most recently. Could you talk a little bit about the process of recording these albums from inception mm-hmm. through to release? And also to, again, talk about the difference between jazz and classical. Does this change or do you have the similar uh, same process for both kinds of records? Let's start by talking about uh, jazz versus classical in general, and then we'll talk about each one of the specific albums. Uh, generally speaking, each one of the albums was a very specific uh, musical focus to it. And it has, so it, has, it had an impetus and it had a, a, a specific purpose. When you play saxophone, the classical ambusher uses a different groups of muscles than the jazz saxophone mouth. So when okay. one plays classical you use a different facial mask you use different parts of your body to activate the instrument there's quite a physical difference between the two i don't look the same so if our viewers could see our uh, zoom meeting you know we were <laughs> you know when what looks like that one so it's physically very different the physicality of it is quite different i'm using a different syllable mm-hmm. so it's almost as if i was speaking the same language but i had two sets of accents so it was still English, but you know, one with this kind of way of formulating your syllables and one with this kind of way of formulating your syllables. I think in, in, a, in social studies, they call this code switching. The facial mask, it takes me about two to four days to switch. But the mental aspect of being involved in classical music versus the mental aspect of being involved in jazz music, that takes much longer. That takes at least two weeks. And that's like the honest truth right there. Because people are like, how oh do you goodness. switch? Like, well, painfully and gradually, I switch. I do switch, but I don't switch like hour here and hour here. Unlike other other mm-hmm. saxophonists who claim to do both and they schedule the same recital and do, oh, I'll play like a classical piece and then I'll play a jazz song. No, 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 no. That's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. I don't do it because you want to do it right. You, you want to do each one of them really correctly. The mental aspect is completely different because in classical music, you have a phrase and you have a very, very, very specific idea 
before that phrase happens of what it is supposed to sound like. You know exactly with great certainty what is about to happen. And it's like solving a mathematical equation that has one number as its solution. And sure, mm -hmm. I mean, people might say, yeah, chamber music, we do this, we do this. Yeah, but on the overall things, no. The notes are written down, the, the pedals are written down, the, you know, the articulation is written down, we're not going to change it. But in jazz, it can go down a whole bunch of different ways. And each one of those mm -hmm. ways is great. And so you are faced with a mathematical equation that has an endless possibilities to be solved correctly. And that is the biggest change in frame of mind that is actually quite difficult for me at least the the going on stage with knowing i'm going to nail this with great accuracy and this is what i'm going to do and going on stage and saying i am open to whatever the universe supplies at that moment and that's and however it goes down it's fine and that's a big difference and that's what makes switching most difficult um, so regarding the albums, um, each one of them was really all about a very specific musical project at the time. Uh, my first record was all about arranging uh, Jewish uh, nursery rhymes to a jazz quartet. And that was with a few uh, former teachers at the University of North Texas and colleagues, really some great players. And that all the material was written ahead of time. We had one rehearsal. We went to the studio for one day of recording, one day of mixing. Does it? So very, very brief. Um, let's see. The, uh, the saxophone and harp project, um, I've um, investigated and, and read through about 70 or 80 different pieces for saxophone and harp from, from, very, from various oh continents, from various times. Uh, but really, uh, the idea that they would be all duos and all preferably originally for saxophone and harp, so not, not, trans not transcriptions. Yes. But really, starting from 1910 and, and, and ending with mm. really contemporary. And so that was really amassing a whole bunch of pieces that I thought would be really nice to play and really nice to hear. Because out of 80 pieces, mm -hmm. oh, you know, some of them were garbage and some of them were really good, right? You'd have to go through them and, and find out which ones are our are, are keepers. I actually have a beautiful quote from a very dear friend of mine uh, from Europe, Jack Adlamakin, who's a tuba player, who uh, once said to me in undergrad, and this has always stuck with me, that when the reason why we have Mozart and Beethoven is because they're the elites that rose to the top and it's the reason why we remember them. Contemporary music, we're being swarmed by everything. So we need to give it 20 years, 50 years, 100 years to see what has stood the test of time. And not everything that's good is going to be remembered. And there's going to be stuff that's remembered that is garbage. But in the main, <laughs> the stuff that is worth being played will stand oh, the test of time. Absolutely. And Nine Short Stories was all originals that I wrote. And each one was slightly distinct. So I thought that's why I called Nine Short Stories, because each, each tune has its own internal grammar if you would know. Um, that was, uh, again, a project I did in Texas because I was here in Eugene already and I called back a whole bunch of buddies that I went to school with and I went over there and we all got together again super quick and we did the record. Um, the very, very last release on Origin is called Live at the Jazz Station, which is totally different because it's all from, with local players here in Eugene and it's all live. Oh, nice. So we recorded two nights Two complete nights at the jazz station, and then I could not handle listen to it at all, so I let it stay on the shelf for a year. And um, 
after listening to it one time, I thought it was not good enough. And my uh, bass player, Garrett Baxter, is like, no, no, no. I think you should listen to it. You should listen to it. It's like, no, I can't handle it. It's terrible. Um, so he's actually the reason why this album came into fruition. I personally, I did not think it was good enough. And he kept pushing. It's like, no, I'm going to listen and pick, pick like the best 15. And I just want you to listen to the best 15. And then narrow it down like to the best eight. And it's like, okay. So we listened to that, and uh, and then I came up with like the eight that that are for me. Like I'm okay with releasing them out to the world, and it was a big surprise to me because that album has been extremely well, well received. It was recorded mm-hmm. at the very very end of 2019, but it was released mid pandemic, and people were really mm-hmm. enjoying hearing the live sounds hearing the audience you know holler and hearing claps and hearing people breathe and talk in the middle and all, all the things that really go with a live performance so it was to my surprise it was really well received speaking about pandemic and how it's challenged us and removing things that we you know are used to but also challenges us to add things yes. that we're not used to and seeing as you had mentioned earlier how the industry is constantly evolving and changing do you think records are worth it in this current climate as we move forward with streams and live streams and other things along those nature, um, knowing that a lot of people don't use records as a way of income, but just a way of putting stuff out there. So what's your insight on this? Record as a, as a mode of curated art that you consume, absolutely. The medium, I'm not sure. CDs, I don't think so, but vinyl has been selling really well. Hmm. So honestly, if, if uh, there was like a young player asking me, should I make a record? My honest, would, my honest answer would be absolutely, because that's a snapshot of where you are as an artist right now, so you should. And you should definitely not wait until you're ready because you're never gonna be ready. You're ready right now. Mm. <laughs> the, you should just do it today. Now, something physical to press, people really love vinyl. I would actually really recommend doing a really, really small release of vinyl, maybe have like a fun color. Sales through Bandcamp, in merchandise it shows is actually pretty good obviously nobody's touring right now but i'm optimistic i also say as a side note if done well as you mentioned with color if you design your vinyl wall or design your case well it's also a piece of art and it's really easy to either frame or put up in a wall and you can just pull it out and play it or put it back up there or cds are just so small and like you just kind of shove them into a book right. so you don't see and them they disappear forever <laughs> about this pesky little pandemic and we've been referring to it as a pesky little pandemic since the podcast started uh how have you kept up with your chamber playing and all your ensembles you can only do what you can do right i think in a way the pandemic was a time where all the masks came off our social masks our behavioral masks not our uh, pandemic epidemiological masks 
the things that we were doing out of niceties and out of obligation, we are not doing it them anymore. And so I think the pandemic in a way was a time of great honesty uh, because if you were to put something out there, the pandemic has been such a huge emotional drain or on, on our bandwidth, whatever that we do dedicate to art, that has to be what ha is necessarily has to happen, artistically speaking. There's no time for wasting time. There's no time for frivolous things that don't really matter. In my own private world, obviously, you have you got to make do with what, what you have, right? And so if my next door neighbor was a tabla player, I would probably had a record of uh, Indian music and saxophone. If my next door neighbor <laughs> would have been a, uh, I don't know, cembalo player, I probably would have had, I don't know, um, early, you know, 16th century music and saxophone. But my next door neighbor is a traditional musician from Zimbabwe. So oh my goodness. that's, that's awesome. what I'm doing. <laughs> so my, now my next door neighbor, John Mambira, is a traditional musician uh, from uh, Bulawayo, uh, Zimbabwe, and he has been touring the world. When, when I say traditional musician, I mean he doesn't, he doesn't play instrument X, because that's not how the thinking is organized. That means he plays a multitude of percussion instruments and uh, a little bit of marimba, and he sings and dances, and it's all the same thing, really. So I got together with John, and we hung out on his porch, like, a lot because we were in the same parent pod together. So there was really nothing much else to do but sit down. And he would call his cousin Rati and he would call like uh, another <laughs> friend of them, Gilbert Zomaida. Gilbert is like a wonderful guitar player who knows many, many, many folk tunes and is really a walking encyclopedia of the tradition. And for about the first month, I just heard him jam and I didn't even clap because you don't want to be the uninformed idiot that claps on the wrong beat, right? That's very important that you sit and listen before you clap, right? Like heaven forbid you clap on one or three in a rock concert, right? We kind of sat down on the porch and I would just hang out. We drank a lot of Coors Light. And after about a month, I was like, yeah, I'll clap. And after a little bit, it's like, hey, can I play? Can I bring my saxophone and play with you guys? Is that okay? And they're like, finally, we thought you'd never ask. So I started playing with them and, and playing around with this music and, and getting to know it a little more and having the, like, the respect for it. And, and um, the core group is a quintet, saxophone, piano, bass, drums, percussion. And to that, we have occasionally joining us Mbira, Mbira, uh, which is a, a traditional um, instrument that was used as a spiritual way to communicate with the spirits and, and to appease the spirits in your everyday life, in your life celebrations, uh, and, and, and voice. And so we are writing music for this kind of particular group. Some of the quote-unquote tunes are tunes that have taken traditional chants like Mondoro, and I've sort of move that through my own pr prism and we have agreed to um, make it a, a more like a contemporary jazz piece. Some of them are completely contemporary. Uh, and we've been recording this in Tori Newhart's, which is our piano players at his living room, one tune at a time, uh, about one tune per three, four weeks. 
So we have about three tunes done and eventually there will be eight tunes done and that will be a record on Origin Records. I hate the word fusion. This is what it is. <laughs> um, I don't like the word fusion because when you tell Americans fusion, <laughs> they think about like Pat Metheny um, and that's not that. So it's, it's a blend of American jazz and Zimbabwean folk tunes. That's really so, cool. That's really I mean, you alluded to a lot of this, but between, you know, the, the Jewish melodies, you working with like a harpist, you working with Zimbabwe, all these unique things. How do you stay so open-minded and encourage yourself to explore new traditions and new opportunities, you know, still growing your knowledge and repertoire and understanding cultural uh, differences and, and, you know, deciding to go and pursue these opportunities? Because I don't see a lot of individuals necessarily embracing them whether it's out of fear or not knowing the right people don't know but i would love to hear a little bit of your story of how you become so open-minded and and really actively pursue these opportunities that's a really great question sorry that's i'm killing the flow i'm killing the flow okay <laughs> i don't really see this as being open-minded i see this as making new friends whenever possible and just working with mm. the people who are around me. And like I said, if my next door neighbor was a viola da gamba player, mm. then we will end up with something else. But this is what I got. <laughs> um, so I'm really, I'm just, I'm making the most out of my situation. I would say mm. more than anything. most important piece of advice you could give to young musicians interested in pursuing a musical career? Write down what you're doing. Have a little notebook in your case. I have a little tiny set, uh, notebook that fits inside my saxophone case. The biggest thing I see with young players is that they don't write what they did. So the next time they get the horn out of the case, they, rem they don't remember where they left off. And so they start from a random spot. But if you have the power of pen and paper, and don't do it on your phone, by the way, because the phone is distracting, uh, you're much better off doing this with pen and paper. Let's say you, mm -hmm. you were in, you know, let's say you're in 10th grade and you just worked on your B major scale and you spent 20 minutes on it and you could play it at quarter equals 80 in eighth notes. Write it down. So next time you can actually start from where you left off. I have a lot of students who practice a lot, but they never start from where they left off. And so they don't have any consistency in their practice. And that translates to having no consistency in performance, which is what we all really want. We want to get on stage and have that stuff at our, at our disposal to, to use. Yeah. 
And I'm going to add in like, personally, I also like doing that with my career goals and like the things I want to accomplish because without writing it down, it just feels like fluff. And then when you write it down, you can start seeing steps you're going to take. And then you acknowledge when you start making shifts or you're trying to prioritize, like for instance, prioritizing writing over the summer versus writing during the school year, knowing that and having that down, like, okay, now it's ingrained. And now I can give myself a space to Mm -hmm. take a step back from something and put my energy elsewhere. Right. And, um, for, again, for the younger students, it's very likely that you're not going to just be practicing one thing. It's very likely that you're going to have some long tones, some overtones, some articulation studies. Maybe there'll be an etude if you're a jazz player. Maybe there'll be a transcription that you're working on. Maybe you're going to be playing some tunes. Maybe there'll be patterns. If you're maybe if you're a classical player, maybe there are orchestral excerpts. <laughs> maybe there's a sonata, right? So that's like seven or eight things. You will never get to seven or eight things every day. It's, it's not possible. So you, you will have no. to have some sort of an A, B rotation. And unless you write it down, you will, you will never know what it is that you got to two days ago that you might need to pick up again. So our last question, we do kind of like a wild card. Uh, so it can be either A, B, or C. So pick one, and then that will be your last question. C. If you could do any project, what would it be? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so my dream classical project would be to record Ziv Slama's new piece uh, Naama mm-hmm. with orchestra because it's amazing. Um, so I recorded a solo version of that in my last uh, last CD Minerva, but now there's addition of strings, which is like it makes mm-hmm. the piece even so much better. So it's like Berio, that the piece existed first as a solo instrument, and then the strings were added. Oh my gosh, yeah, I, that's I, I know that Berio did that with the harp sequenza, and I have always exactly. wanted to do the concerto version yeah. of that. So, so it's like that, and and all of a sudden with strings, it it, be, it became something even awesomer, if that's even possible. So that's for classical, uh, for jazz, I think I would like to take my quintet and go to Dizzy's Club Coca Cola in New York and do a week over there. Smoke would be cool too. Either one of those. So it'll be really cool to take them to New York and just spend a week or two playing night after night and just doing that. Awesome. Exclusively for just a little bit of time. Yeah, so those are my uh, little dreams. Dream projects, they're going to happen. In the post-COVID world, they're going to happen. Right? We're manifesting it into existence, right? And with that, we have come to the end of our questions. So once again, a huge, huge thank you for joining us today. All of your information is going to go down in our show notes below. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been such a delight. And I can't wait to get back to the West Coast. And um, we'll, we'll do some playing when I'm back. I really hope so.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed and performed by Edith Schneer and recorded at the Montevilla Jazz Festival. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>